Well, good morning, Harvest. It's a great privilege uh, for me to be with you. I've uh, heard about the, the birthing of this work and then uh, stayed in touch with Doug to hear about all the wonderful things that have been happening. And it's just a tremendous privilege for me to be here today and also to, to greet some people that uh, I've known uh, previously and just have lost contact with. It's just a wonderful privilege to be with you. Uh, <clears throat> before I get into the message, let me just say a word about the, the organization that I have the privilege of serving, the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors. The word neuthetic, it comes from a couple of Greek words from which the New Testament is translated, and it basically means to change a person's behavior by changing their inner man. And biblical counseling is involved in discerning thinking and behavior that's unbiblical, lovingly talking to people about it, using the Word of God. And our motivation for doing that is to bring honor and glory to God and bring help to the individual people. And NANC is primarily a certifying organization. It was just about two and a half weeks ago that we were in St. Louis for our annual conference. And this year, NANC has certified over 100 counselors for the first time. They've all gone through extensive training testing. They've had their counseling evaluated by a NANC supervisor, and this is a part of the group that uh, was able to make it to St. Louis and to be recognized. And I'm thrilled as I look around to see that we have uh, Jim and Kim Clark over here who are NANC uh, certified, and Brother Jim Sprinkles over here, and there may be other NANC certified counselors in the service that I haven't uh, hooked up with yet. But uh, you're a part of a church where people are committed to using the Word of God to help other people solve problems. And uh, you may have friends or relatives who would like to be a part of a, a training program like that. Doug mentioned that uh, I just returned from St. Louis where we're doing another training event, and we have 160 people there studying the scriptures and learning how to open it and sit down with somebody privately and in a meaningful way use the Word of God to help people solve problems of life and living. And we're doing that kind of training in these five strategic cities across United States. If you know somebody who would enjoy uh, that kind of training, I hope you'll point them in, in our direction. And if you've never visited our website, I hope you go there, uh, nank.org, and uh, you can find a counselor, find resources for counseling, uh, find about the training events that we're doing, and uh, become more aware of what biblical counseling uh, involves. Because of my interest in biblical counseling and because of how I've seen the Word of God change people's lives, today I've chosen to speak to you on the subject of how to gain and maintain a clear conscience. One of the areas that really sets biblical counseling apart from other forms of counseling is the fact that we are able to help individuals gain a clear conscience with God and with other people. Now, dealing with the matter of gaining a clear conscience, of course, assumes the fact that there is such a thing as guilt. And uh, a lot of people realize they feel guilty, but they just don't know how to explain it. In fact, I've, I've come to believe that guilt is one of those fuzzy concepts among many Christians. Uh, people seem to understand they have a broad, general understanding of the matter of guilt. But if you stuck a microphone in their face and said, would you please tell me what guilt is, all of a sudden they're stammering and stuttering. And that was true of me a few years ago. So I did some study, and here's what I learned, that guilt is a legal or a judicial term that implies criminal responsibility in the eyes of a court of law, whether that court is human or divine. Or another way of putting it is, guilt is liability or culpability to punishment for wrongdoing. 
And if you have even a basic understanding of what the, the Bible teaches, you understand that the Scripture teaches that all of us have done things to violate God's standards. And the fact is, all of us are, are sinners. We're guilty by nature and by choice. All of us came into the world, what the Bible would speak of as, as depraved. And the depravity of man does not mean... All of us are as bad as we could be. All of us could choose to sin more if we wanted to. But the depravity of man means we're as bad off as we can be. And it means that all of us are sinners by nature. We're just bent in the direction of doing what's wrong. And you see that even in the life of a, of a precious little infant being born. They're so wonderful, so exciting to have a, a new life in the family and so forth. But it doesn't take very many weeks, very many months before it's manifested. The depravity of man is manifested. And we find ourselves figuring out this kid is not only does things wrong by nature, but later they choose to do what thing, things that are wrong. Right? That's what the depravity of man means. We've all done things by nature and by choice to make us guilty before a holy God. Have you ever considered verses like these? Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means that the standard at which God wants us to live is at, is at this standard, but the fact is all of us live down here. We don't measure up to being the kind of people God wants us to be. And that gap between God's expectations for you and me and the way we live, that gap could be labeled guilt. We fall short of God's glory. And that becomes a significant issue because the Bible says the wages, that is, what you deserve for what you've done. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So the fact is that we are all guilty. We are all guilty before God, and we all realize that not only do we violate God's standards, but we violate the standards of mankind. One of the things that I want you to take away from our uh, time in the, the Word of God this morning is that the Bible teaches that there are significant, multiple price tags for unresolved guilt. In fact, let me just uh, demonstrate that to you from the Scripture. If you have a copy of the Bible with you, would you open to, to Psalm 38? And uh, the book of Psalms, for those of you maybe that aren't real familiar with the Bible, is kind of the middle book in the Bible. So if you'll just put your finger right in the middle, and you'll probably find yourself in the book of Psalms. And then find chapter 38, and uh, look at verses 1 through 18. Psalm 38, verses 1 through 18. And uh, what I'd like to do is uh, give you a... A 45-second reading assignment, all right? Fellas, I'd like you to read verses uh, 1 through 9. And then, ladies, would you read verses 10 through 18? And what I want you to do as you read is to notice what David said his experience was like when he lived with unresolved guilt after his uh, seducing Bathsheba, committing adultery with her, and then conspiring to have her husband killed and trying to cover up that. Uh, Bible scholars tell us that David went somewhere between nine months, maybe even up to a year and a half, before he confessed his sin and cleared his conscience with God. And Psalm 38 is David's testimony of what life is like when you're living with unresolved guilt. So 45 seconds, men verses 1 through 9, ladies verses uh, 10 through 18, and in just a moment I'm going to ask you what you observed. Ready? Begin.
Alrighty, time. Okay, let's hear from maybe a three or four of you fellows. What, what did you observe? What does David say he experienced when he was in this period of unresolved guilt? What were some of the price tags? Speak in a loud, clear voice so that we all can hear you. Raise your hand so I can recognize you. All right, yes, sir. Loud, clear voice. All right, he had no health. All right, somebody else. Yes. He had no peace. Somebody else. He has a sense of being overwhelmed. Thank you. One more. Yes, right here. He had a heavy burden. All right. Ladies, what did you observe from verses 10 through 18? What, what did David say were some of the price tags he experienced when he was living with unresolved guilt? Yes, start over here. He had a sense of being alienated. All right. Somebody else. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, a sense of people out to get him. All right, two others. Yes. About being socially alone. All right, one more, ladies. Yes, ma'am. He was full of anxiety. Now, in the past, I've, um, and I think if you were to take more time to meditate on this, you'd kind of come up with a list like I have. I've meditated on this passage, and here's what David says was the price tag for unresolved guilt. And what I want you to see from the Word of God, take this home with you today, there are significant, multiple price tags for unresolved guilt in your life and in mine. He talks about in the first part of verse 2 about internal pain. He says, thine arrows have sunk deep into me. In the last part of verse 2, he talks about spiritual pressure. He says, thy hand has pressed down on me. By the way, Christians, remember that one. The next time you're talking to somebody and that person tells you that they just feel like God is against them. Maybe he is. David's testimony was when he was living with unresolved guilt, it was just like God was leaning on him all the time. Uh, in verse 3, he talks about physical illness. He says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. In verse 4, he talks about, uh, about a heavy burden. He says, My iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. In verse 5, he talks about worsening circumstances. He says, My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. In verse 6, he talks about daily sadness. He says, I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. In verse 7, he talks about weakness. He says, My loins are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. And in the first part of verse 8, he talks about a loss of caring or a loss of, of feeling. He says, I am benumbed and badly crushed. Now, ladies and gentlemen, pause for just a moment and look at the screen. And just consider what's on the screen right now. This is the way David described himself. In our culture... When people describe themselves like this, in our culture, they are usually said to be depressed. Ladies and gentlemen, would you listen to me carefully? Listen to the Word of God. Learn from, the, learn, learn from God's Word. If you're feeling like this, and it's because of unresolved guilt between you and God, unresolved guilt between you and other people, listen to me. Any psychotropic drug you take to deal with this is going to be a very shallow, ineffective treatment of a real problem.
a deep problem that Jesus Christ can meet. But the point is, we live in a culture where when people talk like this, the solution that most people get is a pill. And I'm saying to you, if you're feeling like this because of unresolved guilt, there is another way that's far better. But what's interesting to me is this is just about the first half of what David says was the price tag for unresolved guilt. Let's move on. In the last part of verse 8, he talks about inward agitation. He says, I groan because of the agitation of my heart. In verse 10, he talks about heart palpitations. He says, my heart throbs, my strength fails me. The last part of verse 10 speaks about sad eyes. He says, the light of mine eyes, even that has gone far from me. In verse 11, he speaks about this sense of aloneness. He says, my loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague, and my kinsmen stand afar off. Reminds me of the verse in Proverbs, maybe you too. Proverbs says that the wicked flees when no one is pursuing. You know, when we're, when we're wicked, when we're guilty, we're always looking over our shoulder. We're always thinking somebody's after us. Well, in verse 12, he talks about a sense of being threatened. He says, those who seek my life lay snares for me, and those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction, and they, they devise treachery all day long. Verse 17 talks about sorrow. He says, my sorrow is continually before me. And in verse 18, think about this statement, folks. He speaks of anxiety. David says, I am full of anxiety. Why, David? Why are you full of anxiety? His statement is, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. And folks, once again, I'll say to you what I want you to take from this, what God would want you to remember from his word, is that unresolved guilt has multiple significant price tags. Now, the good news is God has given us an answer for guilt. And the scriptures are clear on this. I think God's answer for guilt can be summarized through five key statements. And I hope you'll seek to remember these, maybe jot them down, take them with you, because this is the path to getting a clear conscience between you and God, between you and others. The first step in handling our guilt is to acknowledge it to yourself, to acknowledge it to yourself. This is demonstrated in the book of 1 John chapter 1. And again, if you find yourself, you have your Bible, if you turn to that book in the New Testament, 1 John chapter 1. While you're turning there, let me just remind you that this is the book in the Bible that was written to give us the assurance of salvation. That is, if you're ever dealing with somebody and they're not sure that they're born again or you're not sure that you're really born again, the book of 1 John you go to, the book to go to is the book of 1 John. And I want you to notice how this book that's designed to give us assurance of salvation, would you notice how this book begins? Let's just pay attention to verses uh, 5 through 8 right now. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Here's the word of God. This is the message that we have heard from him, and we announce to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, <clears throat> the book that's designed to give us the assurance of salvation begins its presentation saying, here's how you can know you're saved by saying this. One of the marks of people that are truly born again by God's grace is that they admit they sin. That is a significant evidence of salvation 
because all of us come into the world with a tendency to handle our sin the same way that Adam and Eve handled their sin in Genesis chapter 3. Remember that? Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and God came and confronted them? Remember how they handled their sin? They did four things, and all of us by nature tend to do the same thing they did. They ran, they hid, they sowed fig leaves to cover their tracks, and they blame-shifted. And all of us come into the world, our default response when confronted on our own sin, our own failure, our own guilt, our default response is for all of us to do the same thing. We tend to run, hide, sow fig leaves to cover our tracks in one way or another, and we blame shift. That's just natural. Just, it's just bent. We're just bent in that direction. And the book in the Bible that is given to, to, to help us understand if we've been truly born again says... It begins by saying one of the marks of the people who are really born again is they acknowledge their sin. They own responsibility for it. They are willing to say, I did it. I am guilty. In fact, John says people that don't do that are liars, and the truth is not in them. Uh, this reminds me of the verse in uh, Proverbs that says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. What's God's answer for guilt? Well, God's answer for guilt is, first, acknowledge it to yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no answer for your guilt as long as you're rationalizing what you did that was wrong. There's no answer for guilt as long as you're shifting the blame to somebody else. There's no answer for your guilt as long as you're blaming it on your past. There's no answer for guilt as long as you're blaming it on you were tired or doing anything else. The answer for guilt starts when we say, I did it. I was wrong. I'm guilty. The second step in handling our guilt is to confess your sin to God. Acknowledge it to yourself, but then confess it to God. Many of you have the next verse in your Bible underlined. After, uh, it's 1 John 1, 9. It's a well-known verse. It's a great one to underline, a great one to memorize. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, you'll notice that the verse does not say if we sin. I mean, God knows us well enough. He knows we're going to sin. That's not the issue. The issue is not if we sin. The issue is if we will confess our sin. Let me talk to you about what that word confess means. It was a combination of two Greek words. It's the Greek word homo legeo. Homo was a, a Greek word that meant one. Legeo was a, a verb that meant to speak. So when you put these two together, homo legeo, it means to speak one thing. So to confess sin means that you and I say the same thing about our sin that God in heaven says about it. Well, if you read the Bible and pay attention to what it says, you discover that God in, says about our sin that if we got what we deserve for it, we spend eternity apart from him being punished forever in the lake of fire, which the Bible calls hell, that we should repent of it, we should turn from it, we should put off the old man, we should put on the new, we should need to have our thinking renewed. The Bible says that that our sin is an abomination, that our sin is such a big deal that the only way our guilt could be handled was for the perfect Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, to leave the glories of heaven and take on, to humble himself and take on the, the limitations of a human body and to live a perfect life. And at the end of 30, 33 years here on this earth, to allow himself to be crucified by wicked people. And as this righteous man, the perfect Son of God, died on the cross of Calvary, he paid the penalty for your sin and for mine and made it possible for God the Father to show mercy to us righteously. That's how big a deal, deal your guilt is and how big a deal mine is. And to confess our sins means that we say the same thing about our sin that God says about it. And folks, listen to me. One of the problems 
in our culture is that many among us as Christians have a very light view, a very inaccurate view, I think, of confession. Many people, many people think it's just saying some words. Dear Jesus, I sin, please forgive me. Amen. Got that one taken care of. No, you don't. That's not homo legato. That's not saying the same thing about it that God in heaven says about it. Um, I think many people today have maybe what could be called an oops view of sin. You know, oops, sin again, oops, sin again. No big deal. Um, <clears throat> I became particularly alert to that uh, matter through two things that happened. One, in the job that I had uh, before I started working for NANC, as Doug described, I was, had a wonderful job here in the state of Indiana working with churches in, in the state of Indiana, good Bible-believing churches. And um, one of the joys of that is I got to speak in different churches on Sundays and frequently was invited to the home of a leader for lunch and fellowship afterwards. And on one particular day, I was up in the northern part of the state, and after the services, I was invited to the home of one of the respected leaders in the church, and uh, we came into the house, and just wonderful aroma, and several people had been invited over. Later, we sat down at this beautifully set table. It was obvious that the, the, the leader's wife had worked very diligently in preparing for us. And uh, so before we were to eat, the, the husband, one of the leaders in the church, said, well, before uh, we eat, let's, let me lead us in prayer. And so we bowed our head, and uh, he thanked God for his wife and her the food that we were about to enjoy, thank God for their friends that were around the table and for their church, said a couple of nice things about uh, my ministry this morning, and asked God to bless the preaching and teaching of the word. And he gets right down to the end of his prayer, and then he says, and Lord, if any of us have sinned since we got up this morning, please forgive us in Jesus' name, amen. And the words came out so smooth, like that had been said a thousand times. And Lord, if any of us have sinned since we got up this morning, please forgive us in Jesus' name, amen. And I sat there stunned. I'm in the home of a leader in a church that takes pride in his commitment to believing that the Bible is the word of God and teaching it accurately. Does he really think that by him saying that, he can take care of anybody's sin around that table? Ladies and gentlemen, that is an erroneous, that is an oops view of sin and an oops view of confession. And just as that leader couldn't take care of anybody's sin around that table today by saying those words, you can't either. An another incident made me alert to this. I was listening to a, a tape of a man who had been preaching in a, in a college chapel, uh, that I, a school that I'm very interested in, and the man was doing a fine job. And, and I never met the speaker, but my sense was he's, he's a bit younger than me. He was telling a story about what happened with him one time when he was in college, and I guess that probably would have been 20, 25 years ago. And uh, he, he was saying that uh, in there, he went, attended a particular Bible college, and on his dorm floor there was one guy that most of the guys on the dorm were suspicious that the guy was being immoral with his girlfriend. And on one particular uh, day when the guys were kind of standing in the hallway jawing with each other this guy starts bragging about his planned sexual exploits with his girlfriend this coming weekend and after the conversation broke up the guy telling the story said he went to his room he could not get that out of his mind finally he gets up off his bed walks down to the guy's room knocks on the door goes inside sits down on the guy's bed and looks at him and said how could you do that 
I mean, you're at a, for goodness sake, you're at a Bible college, you're preparing to be a pastor or a missionary, and out in the hallway 10 minutes ago, you're bragging about the fact that this weekend you're planning to violate God's standards of morality and in, in committing fornication with your girlfriend. How in the world can you do that? And the man who was confronted responded by saying, well, when we're done, we just 1 John 1, 9 it. Ladies and gentlemen, that is an oops view of sin. And that is an oops view of confession. And before we think too critically of the guy who said that, maybe we all ought to look at how we confessed our sin the last time. And I'm saying to you that the path to genuine, clear conscience with God starts with you owning your sin, but then it involves you coming down hard on it and agreeing with what God said in heaven, and agreeing with God in heaven that if I got what I deserve for what I've done, I'd spend eternity apart from you. And if I got what I deserve for what I've done, I'd spend eternity in hell. And what I've done is so bad that it took Jesus Christ dying on the cross for me. That's what homologato means. Proverbs 28, uh, 13 puts it this way in the last part of the verse. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You see, one of the characteristics of true confession of sin is that there's a forsaking of it. It's just taking it so seriously that we don't keep doing it. In fact, when David did repent, notice some of the terminology that he used. Psalm 51 is David's testimony when he finally repented of his, of his uh, immorality with Bathsheba and, and the, the conspiracy to have her husband uh, killed and so forth. When he did repent, here's how David described his sin. He speaks about my transgressions in two different verses. He talks about my iniquity in, in verses 2 and 4. He talks about my sin in three different verses. He says, I have done what is evil. In fact, in verse 5, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity. If you look at those words, you'll see that David is seeing his sin in all of its nuances, different words being used to describe it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what repentance looks like. This is what confession looks like. Notice that last one. He says, I, I was brought forth in iniquity. David is not saying, when he uses that phrase, that my mother conceived me out of wedlock. That's not what he's saying. But in Psalm 51, where David is repenting of his sin, when he says, I was brought forth in iniquity, as he's looking at himself, he is saying, my problem with sin is a long-term problem. It goes clear back to when I was born. That's what homologeto means. And for some of you who say, I've confessed my sin to God, but I still feel guilty. Listen, friend, maybe you haven't confessed. Maybe you still feel guilty because you're still guilty. Because you've never confessed your sin. Now, the confession that we're talking about for unsaved people is judicial forgiveness. That is, if you have never repented of your sin and cried out to Jesus Christ to, to save you and forgive you for your sin, then that's the most important thing you can do today. Here's a passage for you to remember and to study later. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That's judicial forgiveness. But many of you in the room would say you've already done that then what we're speaking about for you is called parental forgiveness. It's interesting. Two verses later in the book of 1 John, here's what we read. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. 
And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Notice the familial terminology, my little children. So if we're in God's family, if we've been trusted Christ as our Savior, and we're in God's family, then we cry out to our Heavenly Father for forgiveness. But what is God's answer for guilt? Acknowledge it to yourself. Confess to God. Come down hard on it. Third, to have a clear conscience before God and man, we need to confess to appropriate people. Confess to appropriate people. Now, here's a passage of Scripture that many people are familiar with just intellectually. They know it's there in the Bible. Jesus is speaking in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, he says, If therefore you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Now, if we were to take the teaching of Christ and put that into our culture, what the Word of God is teaching is this. Next Sunday, when you all gather for worship, and uh, it comes to that point in the worship where the, the offering baskets are being passed, and we all know how important the offering is in a church, right? Brother Doug, there's some serious deficiencies here. We all know how important the offering is in a church, right? Right, absolutely. Well, next week when the offering baskets are being passed, and if, if right then you remember that somebody's got something against you, what Jesus Christ is saying is more important than you finishing the offering, as important as that is, more important than you finishing the offering is you getting up and go get it settled. The Bible places great emphasis on the, the followers of, of Christ being people who are quick to resolve conflict, to try to, to solve problems as much as they have. It, this shows up in another well-known passage. For example, in James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, <clears throat> most of you who've been in a Bible-believing, preaching church for any period of time, you're familiar with these passages. And yet the fact is that for most of us, we don't have much experience with this. Let me just ask you, when was the last time you confessed sin to somebody and sought their forgiveness? Or turn it around. When was the last time somebody confessed sin to you and asked for your forgiveness? I mean, the fact is, these are well-known verses. We just don't have too much practice with doing them. Let me tell you about one of my colossal failures as a pastor when I was... Uh, serving a church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, at one point in our church's history, I had one of um, my faithful men call me and tell me that he and his wife had a terrible argument the night before and uh, really acted ungodly. And when he got off work, he'd like to come by and talk to me. And I said, sure, come on by. So later in the day, the man comes. He walks in, hanging his head. He's real embarrassed. We sit in the office. I say, well, tell me a little bit of what happened. And I was really amazed and just very disappointed to hear what he told me because this couple that I loved and respected, I mean, they just acted in a blatantly ungodly way. In fact, they, he even told me, he said, we said and did things that, you know, we haven't done since before, that we did even before we were Christians. So it was just terrible. 
And uh, part of the, the argument involved in him yelling at her and, he, and expressing his anger at one point, he knocked over a flower pot and broke that. And at one point he hit the wall so hard they knocked a hole in it and everything. So the man seemed so embarrassed, so chagrined telling me about this that I said, well, man, you, you need to ask God to forgive you. And he said, Pastor, if I've asked God to forgive me one time today, I've asked him a thousand times. He said, that's all I keep thinking about. What, what, what a horrible Christian I was last night. I can't believe I did that, and I've just cried out to God over and over again to forgive me. I said, well, good, you need to believe, First John 1, 9, by faith. And he said, I, I know that. But I said, well, you, he said, it doesn't sound like your wife was perfect, but uh, you had plenty of sin on your end of the, the problem, and you need to go home and ask your wife to to." Uh, can forgive you, confess your sin to her, and ask her to forgive you. And the man seemed so chagrined, so uh, so embarrassed by what he had done, that I thought he just needed a little bit of encouragement. And I said, look, let's just pray together, and then just go home and take get it taken care of, and then try to have a good evening together, and call me tomorrow morning and tell me how things went. And so I sent him on his way. Well, the next morning he calls back and tells me that what happened is he walks in the house, and uh, the way their house is laid up, he walked in from the garage into the area near the kitchen uh, where she was usually preparing the evening meal. Well, she wasn't there that night. In fact, it looked like there wasn't going to be an evening meal that night. And that kind of irritated him. And then he saw where the flower pot had been knocked over and broken and nothing had been done to clean up that mess. That kind of irritated him. And then he saw the hole in the wall he made there, and that kind of irritated him that he had done that. So he had to kind of walk through the house to find his wife, when he finds her, she is cold as ice. Well, that irritated him because she hadn't been perfect the night before. And so they had kind of have the Cold War, you know, for the next two or three hours, nothing being said. Finally, he just says, look, I got to get this handled. So he goes and talks to her and says, look, we got to talk. Said, uh, what happened last night was terrible, and I promise you I'll never call you those names again. I've talked to the pastor about it. He's willing to counsel with us if we want. I've asked God to forgive me because I know I really sinned bad. I'm going to buy you a new flower pot. I'll buy one that's even nicer than the one I broke, and I'll get the wall fixed right away and everything. And he said, I'm not going to do that again. And he said, I'm really embarrassed by what happened. But he said, I just got to tell you that the way you've been acting the last three or four days, you've been acting like a witch, and when you act like that, and then he goes off rationalizing his behavior. He tells me that on the phone, and I find this, this anger just raging. I want to reach through the phone and grab him and say, you did what? And just when I'm starting to get angry and get ready to ream this guy out for being such a blockhead, all of a sudden I'm convicted in my heart. You know why? Because as his pastor, I failed him. I sent him to do what all of us would say is one of the hardest parts of the Christian life, going and humbling yourself to somebody and confessing your sin and seeking forgiveness from them, even when they've sinned against you and need to turn right around and ask your forgiveness. That's hard, isn't it? Everybody say right. That, that is hard. And I sent that man to do one of the hardest parts of the Christian life, and I had not prepared him to do it. I was wrong. And I purposed, I'm never going to do that again. So now as a pastor, now as a counselor, whenever I need to send somebody to go confess sin, this is the phrase, the terminology that I teach them. And if you have a conscience that needs to be cleared by going to somebody and seeking their forgiveness, let me encourage you to use something like this. God has convicted me of how wrong I was when I, and then fill in the blank, and nail it. When I lied to you, when I stole to you, when I called you a vulgar name, when I, whatever. God has convicted me of how wrong I was when I, 
I know I sin not only against God, but also against you. I've confessed my sin to God and asked his forgiveness. I want to confess my sin to you and ask your forgiveness. Would you please forgive me? Now, folks, look at that for just, just a moment. Let me hear from a few of you. What about that statement catches your attention? What about it gives you pause right now? Okay, the owning it. Do you notice all of the eyes? That's what I've been talking about, that first part. That's acknowledging it to yourself, owning it. All right, somebody else, what about that stands out to you? Yeah, there's no blame shifting. It's all right here. All right, somebody else. Do you see that last line? Would you please forgive me? I want to really encourage you that when you go and confess your sin to somebody, that you use the right terminology. Uh, I've told several people, biblical counseling makes us picky about words. Many Christians talk about apologizing for their sin. Folks, the Bible, do not apologize for sin. There is a place to apologize. For example, if when the service is over, if you're going out there to get another cup of coffee and you bump into somebody, well, apologize. Uh, Apologizing is for the oops in life. You know, when you bump into somebody or just something like that happens. But when we're talking about sin, don't apologize. You confess sin and seek forgiveness. And what my experience has been that you may do a good job confessing your sin, but you need to always finish by saying, would you please forgive me? And my observation is most people, many Christians, do not know how to handle that question. In fact, I would predict that what most people do is when you confess your sin to them and ask them to forgive you, they'll do two things. One is they will minimize the issue or they will deflect the question, but they won't say yes or no. They'll minimize the issue. Hey, that's all right. None of us are perfect. We all have bad days. I've done stuff wrong myself. Don't let it bother you. But they won't answer the question. And what I've learned to teach my counselees, and I would encourage you, when you need to confess your sin to somebody, you prepare yourself to ask that question three times if necessary. And you may end up saying to somebody, hey, listen, the issue wasn't me having a bad day. I was having a sinning day. And I want to ask you one more time. What I did was really wrong. I know I sinned against not only God but you. Would you please forgive me? What I found is if you only ask once and you don't get a clear answer, you'll walk away and say, well, did I do it right? Did I do it wrong? Do I need to go back and talk to him again? It's just left kind of mucky. But I've discovered that if you ask people three times straight up, I sinned against you and against God, would you please forgive me? And you ask it three times and you still don't get an answer. What I found is you're able to walk away and say, look, man, I confessed three times. I asked him three times to forgive me. I mean, straight up, I was clear. I, then I think you can say, I've done everything I can at this point to resolve the issue that's on their side of the court right now. Confess your sin to other people. Well, quickly, let me talk to you about uh, the fourth step in handling our guilt, and that is to make restitution. Let me give you a definition of restitution. To make restitution means that you repay someone for the loss they experienced because of your sin. To make restitution means that you repay someone for the loss they experienced because of your sin. For example, think about this verse. This is the well-known passage about the prodigal son. When the prodigal son was repenting, he said, I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. 
Now, as you know, the prodigal son has squandered all of the inheritance he had. There's no way that he can repay his father for the loss that the father had experienced financially, and there's no way that he can repay him for the loss he had experienced in respect in the community. With having a son say, I wish you were dead, give me my inheritance now. I mean, there's no way he could repay that. All the prodigal son had left was himself, was his body. And that's why I think when he's planning what he's going to say, he's going to offer himself as a form of restitution. That's all I have. Make me as one of your slaves. I'll serve you the rest of my life to do my best to repay you. Uh, here's another verse that, uh, that, that talks about it. <clears throat> uh, in Luke 19:8, the scripture says, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Now think about that. Zacchaeus was saying to Jesus Christ as evidence of the fruit of his repentance. He said, If I have sinned and I've gained $10 deceitfully somebody, Zacchaeus is announcing he's going to give back how much? $40. He says, If I've gained $100 deceitfully, I'm giving back how much? Yeah, if I've gained $1,000 deceitfully, I'm giving how much back? Yeah. Do you know what Jesus Christ said to discourage Zacchaeus from doing that? Nothing. It was part of the fruit of repentance. I've discovered that one of the reasons some people say, I've confessed my sin to God, and I've confessed my sin to other people, but I still feel guilty is because they've not made restitution. They've not cleared their conscience by seeking to repay others for what they, the loss they experienced because of the individual sin. We need to make restitution. Repay people as much as we can for the loss that they've experienced because of our, our sin. Well, God's final step in handling our guilt and gaining a clear conscience is to change. This is the, the biblical terminology called repenting. To repent means to have a change of thinking that leads to a change of behavior. So when we talk about changing, God wants us to repent in our thinking. For example, this is talked about in 2 Corinthians 10.5, which says, We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So we need to change our thinking. Change our thinking about the person who maybe is frustrating the fire out of us, Maybe change our thinking about our spouse, about our kids, about our parents, about our employers, about our circumstances in life, and we begin thinking biblically. We change the way we think. And ladies and gentlemen, if you truly change the way you think, it will change your sinful behavior. Repentance is a change thinking that leads to a change behavior. If there is no change behavior, I would argue there's really no repentance, no change thinking. Change thinking is talked about excuse me, change behavior is talked about, for example, in Romans chapter 6, verse 19. Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Change. And again, I would say, maybe for some of you who would say, well, I've, I've tried to confess my sin to God, and I've tried to confess my, my sin to, to appropriate people. And you say, but I still feel guilty. Randy, why is that? Well, sometimes it's because people have confessed, and they've confessed to people, maybe offered to make restitution, but they still feel guilty because in reality, 
They haven't changed their thinking. And in their heart of hearts, they know, today I'm the same person I was years ago when I committed adultery, when I was caught shoplifting. I'm the same person today as I was when I was a liar by practice, when fill in the sin, whatever. If you haven't changed your thinking and it hasn't really worked out in a changed lifestyle, you'll typically feel guilty. Well, God's Word has clear answers on how we can obtain a clear conscience and maintain it. And it's very straightforward, just the way God's Word is. For you and me, that means to acknowledge our sin, to own it, to confess our sin to God, to come down hard on it, to confess to appropriate people, to humble ourselves before them, even if they've sinned against us. But we go out of a love for God and obedience to His Word. We're willing to make restitution, to repay people for what they've, the loss they've experienced because of our sin. And then we change our thinking and our behavior. We repent and bring forth the fruit of repentance. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you will leave today purposing in your heart to clear your conscience with God and with appropriate people. And I'd say especially if you're here and this whole business of repenting and knowing Christ and being saved and a clear, all that stuff I've talked about earlier, if you've never done that, there's a whole bunch of people here who would love the privilege of talking with you and explaining more fully how you can be born again, you can be new in the inner man and clean with God and clean with appropriate people. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, I pray that you will use the... Uh, preaching the teaching of your word to bring about lasting change in the lives of these dear people for your honor and glory. Bless this church. Help them as they seek to reach uh, the west side of Indianapolis and to see people uh, born again through justification, see them growing and changing through progressive sanctification. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.